If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. We were on the precipice of revolutionary change. People were, black people were literally locked out of the system. And because of that, we were saying, well, yeah, let's just do something else, right? Um, and one of the tools in which, one of the most effective tools in which that was dampened was to give us stuff, right? It was to give us something. That was Kahinde Andrews talking about black Britons in the 1960s. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Now, before we go on to today's interview, I've got a couple of quick announcements. First of all, I'd like to tell you about our next event, which is a Kings and Queens weekend taking place in Oxford on the 2nd and 3rd of March. It's two days of talks from expert speakers on a range of monarchs, including Elizabeth I, Robert the Bruce, Henry VIII, Empress Matilda and a whole lot more. Find out more details and book tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events. Meanwhile, I wanted to update you on the latest developments on our website, historyextra.com. If you're a subscriber to BBC History magazine, in print or in digital through the Apple Store or Google Play, then you can now access a 10-year archive of magazine content for free in our online library. Head to historyextra.com forward slash the hyphen library to access this new resource. OK, and now on to today's interview. Our guest for this episode is Kahinde Andrews, who is Professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University. He's also the author of Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century, which was published earlier this year by Zed Books. He came into our Bristol studio recently to discuss the history of black radicalism and share some of his opinions on black history more broadly. Putting the questions to him was our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman. Okay, so Kinde, thank you for coming in today. Mm-hmm. Perhaps before we kind of get into any discussions, sort of tell me a little bit about the book. You know, what were your, you know, why did you want to write it? Um, yeah, so I've been doing work on black radicalism for probably years now and trying to build organisations and do the writing work. Part of my PhD was on black radicalism and the conversations I've had have just shown it is the most misunderstood set of political ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like you're always trying to defend yourself against things that you never said, never thought, never would have included in the history of black radicalism. And so the book really is an attempt to say, well, look, let's clear out the, the way and say, well, look, these, this is what black radicalism is. Mm-hmm. This is what it isn't. And make it very clear. And obviously some people probably still won't agree with it, but at least we're having a conversation about yeah. the actual thing itself. So, so what is black radicalism then? Uh, so it basically has two parts to it. One is it's black, which 
probably sounds simple, but actually it's <laughs> far more complicated than you'd think. Yeah. Uh, black simply means, in if I'm going to be short to explain it, uh, descended from the African diaspora, but really importantly, it's about politics. So there's a political identity that we have, and that's why blackness is important. Uh, that's radical because what that does is it puts us in a it puts us in a diaspora uh, collection of people. And the poorest people in the world, the people who are the most oppressed, the wretched of the earth, what Franz Fanon would call, mm. are in Africa. Like you, you were talking about a continent where three million children die in South East Africa every year for no yeah. reason. So when you when you claim blackness in that sense, when I say that this the color of my skin and the kink in my hair means that I'm connected, that's my collectivity. Mm. It means I have to have a diff completely different set of political ideas because now we're talking about how do we stop children dying not how do we get more black professors, for yeah. example. Right. So how does that differ to black nationalism? Yeah, so black nationalism, so in many ways the confusion of black radicalism mm. is terms like black nationalism get used quite a lot. Uh, Malcolm X, my absolute favourite, who's in the book about 200, <laughs> about lot, yeah. 200 times, I think, um, would say, I said, I'm a black nationalist freedom fighter. But one of the things I'm really trying to do here, and I think the history of ideas is really important, Mm. It's actually, we need to be more precise. Black nationalism, there is a kind of revolutionary version of black nationalism, which would be exactly what I just said. Yeah. But actually, there's other versions of black nationalism, which are very narrow, which are very like American centered, um, which don't have that kind of global appeal to it. And so I really, in the, my whole chapter in the book is basically saying that we need to stop thinking uh, nar along narrow nationalist lines. So yeah. for example, actually in the UK, uh, this, this rise of, of black Britishness, which is good in, in some ways, at least people are saying they're black, but also when you frame it as, as Britain and Britain as an island, it just really narrows your politics. And what we're trying to say is that you have to have a global politics, not a narrow nationalist yeah. politics. Because you, you talk quite a lot in the book, don't you, about all these different sorts of ideologies that have, yeah. you sort of cover them off. Um, I think pan-Africanism yeah. is, is one. Um, but ultimately what you're saying is that the the West is is basically built on racism. Is that that's kind of what you're saying? The yeah. universities, all these big institutions. Mm -hmm. um, how have those sorts of ideas gone down with people? You know, when they've been reading the book, what sort of feedback have you had? Um, yeah, I mean, I think most people. It's difficult to argue with. No, it's actually, mm. it's not true. It's very easy to argue with, but not from a real sustained point. A reality. Mm. I mean, the book I'm currently writing now actually is called. The West is built on racism, which is essentially a revisionist history, uh, taking that idea, because Back to Black is there, but it's not the focus of it, um, and taking that idea and saying, well, actually, let's really look at these institutions. Let's really look at how how things work. And, you know, like this idea, so Africa has been the poorest continent in the in the world, where actually Africa is the richest continent, has the most resources mm. by a distance of any continent. And if you actually look at global inequality, it's it matches white supremacy to a T, right? White countries are at the top, Africa's at the bottom, and then you have like a kind of <laughs> brown people in the middle, which is exactly what the Western philosophers, people like Kant and Hegel and Locke, was, were kind of arguing at the time. So it's when you actually look at the evidence, it's, it's pretty difficult to argue with the fact mm. that the West is built on racism. Slavery, colonialism, and genocide are just as important as science, entrepreneurship, and yeah. all those other things, right? Yeah. I mean, look, looking at um, education um, and sort of looking at universities, um, what do you sort of make of, there's been quite a lot in the news sort of recently of, of campaigns and, and movements like, you know, Roads Must Fall, mm. um, 
Black Lives Matter, things like that. How do you are those are those? Do you see those as radical movements, or um, are they helping kind of people to be more aware of you know Black history and you know you know in schools and things like that? Um, yeah, I think one of the other things I try to do in the book is to be very precise and probably maybe even too precise about using the term radical. Mm. Um, to quote Malcolm X, which probably won't be the last time. This word revolutionary has been misused. Yeah. There's very few radical political ideas. If you look back historically, like Marxism, uh, some versions of, of, of uh, feminism and radical. There's really very few arguments which are radical. What does radical mean? It means you want to overturn the existing political and economic system. Uh, it's not about reform. It's not about changing. It's not about legislation. And so I think if you look at things like why is my curriculum white, Rose must fall. You know, fundamentally, those aren't radical politics. Those are those are useful politics, and mm. they are necessary politics, and they're important politics. Yeah. Uh, but what they're basically arguing is that there's something wrong with the education system, which can be fixed uh, through getting enough, you know, getting a different curriculum, getting different people in on board. And again, I'm all for these. These are all very good ideas. They're just not radical ideas. No. Okay. Um, what would you say are kind of the key moments in in the history of black nationalism? So the Haitian Revolution is really important yep. in terms of black radicalism uh, because I mean, that is the only successful slave rebellion in history, of history of all human history. No slave rebellion has ever been successful previously or, mm. or, or since. And I think you can't really underestimate how important that is. I mean, that really does change the way the West operates uh, its slave system. So mm. Haitian Revolution was took a long time. It took about 10, 12 years, uh, finished in 1804, Eventually, after and there's a whole there's a whole long story about this. Uh, Black Jacobins by C. L. R. James is the best book to kind of okay <laughs> a really good like examination of it. But it's not a coincidence that after 1804 in 1807 is that's when Britain passes the abolition of the British Slave Trade Act. And does mm. not abolish slavery until 30 almost no actually over 30 years later. And the reason for that is one of the reasons they Britain wanted to end the trade and rather than end. Uh, slavery itself was because they were terrified of African, African-born, African-born people on mm. plantations. Haitian slavery was one of the m- more severe versions of slavery. All, sla- all versions were terrible, uh, but Haitian slavery meant that they literally worked you to death. So even though there'd been slavery in Haiti for t- at least two hundred years at that point, sixty uh, percent of the enslaved at the time of the rebellion were born in Africa because they literally just worked you to death and just replaced them, just replaced, replaced, replaced. And so the narrative became, is these were, we're afraid of these African-born people. If you look at uh, Maroons uh, who were across the Caribbean and the Americas, Maroons, people who resisted and, f- and escaped from slavery, mm. were far more likely to be African-born uh, because they knew freedom in a sense. And so it kind of changes the way the slave trade ends <laughs> after that yeah. directly because they're afraid of African-born people. Um, also, Haiti has a huge effect on France because uh, that is France's major colony. And France has to sell Louisiana to um, America because it can't afford, literally can't, literally can't afford to keep, literally can't afford to keep it. Yeah. So it's a massive, important turning point in uh, in Western history in general. Why didn't um, that sort of, or, or did it? I mean, the that idea catch on? Did you were there similar revolts going, you know, happening around the same sort of time, sort of you know, inspired by what happened in Haiti? Uh, yes, that's what that's. There's two reasons why hate is really important. One, mm. because it's successful, but two, because actually success shows you why you need to have revolution uh, across the board. Like, yeah. So Haiti has a revolution in Haiti, but the reason Haiti is the poorest country in the world today is because it had a revolution in 1804. I mean, it's surrounded by other slave colonies. Uh, France essentially says you have to pay reparations for freeing yourself, um, which it doesn't pay back for almost 100 years, no, over 100 years. And it just shows that even if you can't really have freedom, unless every unless you've 
dismantle the system which is oppressing you. Mm. And the so there were a lot, and there were lots of other rebellions, Jamaica, uh, Antigua, America. Um, but they just they were never successful. Unfortunately, they were never successful. So you didn't have, you didn't, we weren't able to overturn the system of slavery. And so Haiti was never really free in mm. a sense, even okay. though it freed itself. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really punished then. For, yeah, no, for, hugely. But I mean, yeah. yeah, literally, you can track why Haiti is so poor, yeah. and the reason is because it, it freed it freed itself essentially and was punished for still being punished because of it. Yeah. But anyways, um, so that'd be one. I think that's really important. Second one, the ironically actually the Pan African Conference in Manchester in 1945. So the book has a whole chapter where I basically say Pan Africanism isn't isn't radical, and actually Pan Africanism led to led to what we have today and became a way of embedding Africa more into the system of oppression than taking it out. Yeah. Um, so it's ironic that I'm saying the Pan-African, Fifth Pan-African Congress. But I think that's important because you had a moment there where you did have the leaders of really all the countries who were involved in um, independent struggles. Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana was there. Um, Hastings, Banding, Hastings Banda of Malawi was there. Jomo Kenyatta of Kenya was there. You have this moment where you, people are finally talking about independence and revolution and this kind of, we want to have, um, Kwame Nkrumah was talking about revolution across the continent and we'll have the United States of Africa, which mm. is kind of that not narrow nationalist basis of politics. But that gets undone within 15 years because what Britain does and what the, particularly Britain, but all the other uh, European powers do is they just give independence uh, into these small little nation states and you have sovereignty in your little nation state and then everybody's competing with each other and Mm. And that's basically what derails um, Pan-Africanism. So I've, as much as I'd say it's problematic, it's also important because there was a moment there, mm. uh, but it was a moment that got, got derailed, unfortunately. So the thing about Pan-Africanism, over until 1945, the formal movement of Pan-Africanism, which started in 1900, mm. uh, even started talking about independence. Previously, they were just talking about um, trusteeship, staying within the colonies, colonial okay. relationship, and then it becomes a bit more radical in 1945. Uh, but underpinning that was these were, these were really national liberation struggles yeah and when they got the nation states everybody wanted to protect the national protect their sovereignty and actually gets in written into the organization of african unity organization of african unity which is like the first continental african yeah body the thing that completely undermines it for me is the fact that in the constitution it says no country can have sovereignty over another country and remember these countries are just completely made up fictional borders by the, the west these aren't like Mm. There's no defense of these countries. These countries have no reality to them yeah. whatsoever. But we just and we're still stuck in the process of uh, of defending them. So Nigeria don't like Ghana. Ghana doesn't like. But they're all yeah. Yeah. So yeah. for me, that's a big problem with Pan Africanism. So Pan Africanism is this very broad term, which generally means that the unification of Africa um, and Africans, and also includes Africans in the diaspora as well, um, because it's so broad. Though this includes a variety of different figures and ideas. Uh, one of the things I was keen to do in the book was to narrow it down, actually, and say that these are different things. Mm. So what I identify as Pan-Africanism is a movement that starts in 1900 in the Pan-African Conference, which is actually in London, and actually in the Palace of Westminster, which should tell you something about the politics of yeah. the first Pan-African Conference. And then they organise a series of uh, congresses um, in France. Paris has one, uh, comes back to London again. And at this point, this is the elite, really. This is kind of the elite from Caribbean to mm. African countries. Uh, W.B. Du Bois, the African-American intellectual, is involved. Um, but this is a very small strata of the black world. This is, this is, this is a, the elite, right? One of the reasons I'm keen to 
separate this out from other ideas is at the same time you had the Garvey movement, Garveyism, uh, Marcus Garvey, Amy Jakes Garvey, etc., mm. which built the largest black organization that's ever existed, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, that had 5 million members across 50 countries 100 years ago, which is literally unbelievable. Wow, yeah. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable, right? Yeah. Uh, no Twitter. No. No. <laughs> no. No phone. They didn't even have phones. How yeah. did they manage to do this? Literally, it's a really amazing accomplishment. But that often gets, like Garvey often gets put in the Pan-African bracket. But he was never invited to the Pan-African Conference. These were just totally different things. And actually, the Garvey movement was a mass movement, millions of people, these huge, huge events at the same time as Pan-Africanism, at the same at the same time. But they were like totally different, totally different in form, in the people who were there, in the politics of them. Um, Garveyism was always about Africa for the Africans mm. and a revolutionary politics, whereas Pan-Africanism didn't start to make the argument of African independence until 1945. Yeah. And so I just don't know how you... For me, we're looking at the history of intellectual ideas. You have to separate those two things out because they're completely different. Yeah. And Du Bois, who was kind of the intellectual father of that kind of Pan-Africanism, hated Marcus Garvey, called him stupid, ugly, and black. Um, <laughs> which, again, tells you some of the politics yeah. of, of, of Pan-Africanism. So and it was partly difficult for me because if you grow up in the West uh, and you hear about Pan-Africanism, is kind of like we're told this is what the radical politics is. Yeah. This was supposed to be the final chapter of the book. Oh, look at Pan-Africanism. It's great. When I actually started doing more research on it, I was like, geez, this, mm. the actual history of this is, is closer to European attempts to repatriate black people back to Africa than it is to the Garvey movement who were talking about revolutionary Africa for the, for the yeah, Africans. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when I, it, when I was reading it. And Marcus Garvey, he's, he's quite an interesting character himself. Mm-hmm. But he was very influential, wasn't he? Yes. Um, from Jamaica. Yeah. Um, but I think he he's he was in in sort of Britain for quite quite mm-hmm. a long time, um, but he he did advocate, didn't he, that kind of um, Africans going back to Africa, yeah. um, which is a part of Pan Africanism, isn't it? That's that's is that quite? Am I right in saying that? It's that's one of the uh, that having yeah. the sort of homeland. Um, yeah, so that's the thing. But even within uh, this, this is also one of the differences. Actually, Excuse yeah. me. so Du Bois uh, and Pan Africanism formal like organised this kind of. 1900 onwards, yeah. Africanism never really argued for the physical return. Um, in fact, Du Bois is one of the strongest strongest proponents of African Americans, African Americans, and mm. as a nation within the nation, the African Americans yeah. can be. Uh, he never. This is one of the areas they disagreed with quite a lot, actually. Because Garvey's the analysis of Garvey. It's not necessarily Marcus Garvey. Like Amy Jakes Garvey was hugely important to the Garvey mm. movement as well. And yes, yeah, Garveyism. But we say Garveyism. But the argument of Garveyism uh, was that similar to black radicalism is that the West is not built for us. It can't work. You're not going to have equality in America. You're not going to have equality in Jamaica. It's not possible. And so that's the reason you say, well, let's leave. <laughs> like, Because mm. you literally cannot get freedom, justice, and equality as black people here. Uh, whereas Du Bois, even though he's building this Pan-African idea, is still wed to the idea you can have equality in, in, in America and is still an integrationist. So they, that's one of the areas they massively disagree on. Mm. Um, but Garvey's, the Garvey movement is one of the most influential intellectual movements on the African continent, um, if you look at the red, black, and green, that was the flag uh, which they built and they used those colours. Those colours are spread across the flags of, uh, I think Zimbabwe uses them, Mozambique uses them. Like, the black star in the middle of Ghana's flag is uh, from the black star line mm. from Garvey movement. Yeah. And actually, Marcus Garvey never travelled to Africa because he wasn't, wasn't allowed. He was banned. They were okay. terrified of what would happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when he was... Uh, so he was born in Jamaica... Uh, but I always say Garvey should be one of Britain's national heroes. He's the most 
important black British figure of the 20th century. And when I say this, Jamaicans get upset. Uh, and British people are talking about is Jamaican, but Jamaican didn't exist. I mean, no. Jamaican became independent in 1962. Garvey died in London in 1940. So he was born in Britain. So he was Jamaica yeah. and he died in, he died in Britain. Mm. So I'm not sure how he's, how he's anything other than, other yeah. than British. Um, and the story of actually Marcus Garvey's death is sad and absurd. He read in the newspaper uh, an obituary. Somebody had written an obituary of him and he had a stroke and died the next day. Wow. Oh, yeah. it's that's bad, very it? tragic. That is yeah. a tragic story, isn't it? What a, yeah, what a tragic end. Yeah. So that was your second, so you talked about yes. the, the, the um, conference. Yeah. Um, what would they use your third? Uh, so the third moment would have to be the assassination of, um, assassination of Malcolm X. Uh, Malcolm X is my favourite person in history because for two real reasons. One is he kind of articulates the politics of black radicalism better, more clearly than anyone else. And also understands the system of racism that we're dealing with better than anybody else, better than the academic, actually, which is why he's in the book mm. 200 times. <laughs> and, and, and because, and so one of the examples I use in the book is, so the emergence of critical race theory in American, uh, people like Kimberly Crenshaw, who argue that civil rights hasn't delivered on any of its promises, even though it's quite, if you look historically, it's quite successful mm. in terms of there's desegregation, uh, there's voting rights, there's black people get political political there's political reforms there's affirmative action all of this cha- all these changes which happen but then if you actually look at the situation of african americans it's definitely not better it may actually be worse so for example the schools are more segregated by race today than they were in 1955 um you have a black middle class who's emerged but the av- the poverty rate for african americans is roughly the same as it was 50 years ago in general uh you have new problems mass incarceration Mm. And this mass incarceration is so, and it's, it's unbelievably bad to the point where if you, an uh, African-American boy born today uh, without, who doesn't get a high school degree, will have a high school qualification, will have a 60% chance of going to prison before their 30th birthday. Even if you have a university degree, you have a 30% chance of going to prison before your 30th birthday. I mean, it's literally unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. it is. I mean, there are more African-American men in prison today than there were who were enslaved at, at emancipation. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it's actually just worse now than it was previously. But when I read Critical Race Theory, I just, I know I'd heard, I heard it. It was reminiscent. I was like, have I heard it was before? Mm. And it's Malcolm X in the 60s telling you exactly this would happen. That civil rights is... Uh, the best you're going to get is second-class citizenship. Uh, you may get a few people who are successful who, who can make it through, but the system can no more provide freedom, justice, and equality than a chicken can lay a duck egg, uh, to quote Malcolm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and so Malcolm just gets it, and he gets it, and he articulates the politics of black radicalism, not perfectly at first because he's in the Nation of Islam for far too long, but when he comes out of the nation, he finds the organization of Afro-American unity, in 1964. Um, also important, this is a collective of people. So the leader of, the first chairperson of the OAAU is Lynn Shiflett. Uh, there's also people like John Henry Clark, who's a really influential African-American intellectual. Uh, Maya Angelou was moved, moved back from Ghana to work in Malcolm X. And there in 64, there's a speech, the second founding rally of the OAAU, where they just break, it breaks down, this, we're gonna do this, 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 uh, which is effectively the Garvey movement, but with more radical politics. And this is what I point to in the book and say that is the vehicle for black radicalism. And had Malcolm X not been assassinated in 65, maybe that would have been able to develop into the vehicle it needed to be. Because you had the politics, you had the organization, 
and you had the front person. You need a front yeah. person for these things. So that was but a critical point. That was then. a really critical mm. point. I think if Malcolm hadn't been assassinated, we really could have seen where that organisation would have would have gone. Yeah, because Malcolm X and tends tends to get kind of lumped together with Martin Luther King. Yeah, because they're they were contemporaries, and but actually, it's not really accurate, is it, to call Malcolm X a civil rights. No, it was the worst. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they didn't, and I wasn't aware of how um, actually the the the, sort of the tension between the two. Yeah. Um, do you want to kind of because there's there's quite an interesting story about the march on Washington, isn't there? Yes. Um, so, <laughs> um, so yeah, so to call one of the, so Malcolm is one of the most far by far most misunderstood people hmm. historically. He's either he, he's an anti-white demagogue who's violent. You never commit any political violence at all, actually. Yeah. Um, or now he's a civil rights leader, which is a complete nonsense. Malcolm was the biggest critic of civil rights movement I've ever heard, alive or dead. Uh, literally called, so the 1963 March on Washington, which is the big showpiece march, uh, that's 250,000 people in Washington, D.C. That's where you have the I Have a Dream speech. It's successful in because you have it follows 1964. You have a civil rights act which desegregates um, the South, um, and Malcolm went to it. And his exact words were, "It was a circus with clowns and all." He called it the farce on Washington, a Hollywood production, literally a picnic. Mm. He, was, he, he couldn't have been. He couldn't have been any oh, wow, yeah. more angry about it. And the reason is uh, because. Originally, the march was was this grassroots kind of emergent. We're going to march on Washington. We're going to close it down. We're going to shut it down. It's going to be we don't know what's going to happen, but something's going to happen in yeah. Washington. And the story that Malcolm told, tells in the speech, uh, messages to the grassroots, which he gave in Detroit in '63, and he's kind of at the end, like he gave a whole speech about something else, and then he just goes off for like a good ten minutes, <laughs> which I recommend listening to because it's it's enlightening and funny at the same time. Yeah. Um, and he says, well, look, what happened was the president gets word that this march is going to come and calls the big six. So the big six were like the six civil rights organisations uh, headed by Martin Luther King, uh, Eli Whitney, Andrew Young. And they were the people who like liaised with the president, essentially, and the powers that be effectively had the, had the platform. right? Mm. And so he goes to the big six and says, um, you got to stop it. This march can't happen. Like, if you do this, we're not going to have civil rights legislation, et cetera, et cetera. And their response is, we can't stop it because we didn't start it. This has nothing, <laughs> nothing to do with us. Like, this is yeah. just, they're running off on themselves. And so, according to Malcolm, the the president organized a group of uh, financiers, white, very rich white financiers, to give lots of money to the civil rights organizations so they could control, get get control of this march, uh, organize it. And that's that's what happens. So they start to organize it. They get um, Harry Harry, Be- Harry Belafonte gets the celebrities in. They organize the buses and the trains. And it's so controlled. It's so controlled as a march that you couldn't even take your own placard. Like you, they would <laughs> take them off you and give you a placard. an official placard. <laughs> an wow. Official placard. That's why if yeah. you actually watch the videos, there's only like two different placards. I think it was jobs and march for jobs and freedom. And they're just, but it was very very controlled. All right. They march from one part of town to the part of town. Um, well, what does Malcolm say? They march from the de- feet of a dead man named Lincoln to the feet of a dead man named Washington. Um, they're out of town by nighttime. There's no alcohol sold. And it really, like, there's a, there's a clip on YouTube where you just watch, like, a five-minute video of it, and it's like a processional thing. And it's, 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 it's one of the most stage-managed political events I've ever seen. And they're celebrating the fact it went off well, and it, and it ends with the, the big six going to the president, and they have photos and they sign this thing and then the bill happens next year. Mm. And Malcolm just says, he's like, what's this? This is not the kind of change that we need. And so after I listened to that, I was like, well, I'm sure he's like, kind of like, we must be making some of this up. <laughs> but there's a book by Gary Young called The Speech. 
And I swear, he's exactly like Michael got exactly right. Every single detail yeah. was a hundred percent right. They literally just sanitized, watered it down, integrated it. That's one of Malcolm's problems with it. Um, it's a kind of integrated march. Uh, and the thing about Malcolm is Malcolm's not anti-white. He's not. He's not saying white people can't be involved and white people are, are terrible. And it's the problem he's saying is that once you integrate the march, you you take away that kind of urgency of of, of the black revolution. Like you know you you have to compromise. It becomes something different. Mm. As whereas before it was what do you say? Before it's like with coffee. Before it was hot, and then you put milk in it, and it becomes cool. Yeah. And he's saying you just you've just tempered it down. And if you look at the march, there's no way you could defend that march as a as a grassroots spontaneous yeah. thing. They even stopped James Baldwin, who's not even that radical from speaking, because yeah. they were afraid of what he was going to say. And yet that's not really known why well, it's not really widely spoken about that's that side of it at all. No, we just see it and we see and we see the speech and we go, oh, isn't that yeah. great? <laughs> yeah, but, um, but I mean the other side of that is you could argue that that is exactly what it needed. I mean I think that's the that's the other thing. I understand why mm. they did it. And if you want liberal change and if you think that getting the president involved and passing these bills is the way to get change, then it was probably the correct course of action. Mm. And that's why Michael's mad because he's saying, look, this is that's we had a we had a people were mad. People were wanted a potential for something different, but you've kind of captured it in this way, which is gonna lead to this bill being passed. But then fifty years later, everything's still gonna be just as bad as it was. I mean a, a lot was made um recently of the the anniversary of the uh the Race Relations Act yeah. um, in '65. Um, how far did it actually go to, to tackle racism? Um, we're looking at Britain now, really. <laughs> uh, the fact the Race Relations Act was amended in '71, amended in '91, and amended in like, 2000, amended again in 2011. Mm. Don't it didn't go very far in '65 because they had to keep changing it. Um, the other thing is, and this is part of what the book is, um, is to say that. That whole thing, so it's not a coincidence. You get the Race Relations Act in 65, uh, you get civil rights in 64 and 65 in America, mm. you get independence in the, the 60s, is a big, the big decade of independence, independence being granted in different countries. Um, because to say that that was, we were on the precipice of revolutionary change. People were, black people were literally locked out of the system. And because of that, we were saying, well, yeah, let's just do something else, right? Mm. Um, and one of the tools in which, one of the most effective tools in which that was dampened was to give us stuff, right? It was to give us something. One of them was violence. Let's not, let's not pretend like people are killed. But the other thing was to give us stuff, to give us concessions. Mm. And Britain, that's exactly what you get in Britain in 65. Make it, make life a little bit easier so people... Calm down. <laughs> calm and then, down, yeah. exactly. Uh, yeah. you know? But then you turn around 50 years later, like Britain is... I think people underestimate how bad... Britain is in parts of Birmingham where I live is forty percent, up to fifty percent uh, black male youth unemployment. I mean that's third world levels of unemployment. Um, mm. If you look at, if you look at any area, if you look at mental health, if you look at inequality, if you look at income inequality, if you look at any area, we're still doing as a whole doing terribly. Just mm. because a few of us can get decent jobs. Look, I have a professor, a professor at university, which. In '65, obviously that's not happening because you've got <laughs> rules that say you can just discriminate against me. Yeah. But you'd be wrong to say that because that can now happen, things are better for black people as a whole. Because they're not most people from my area, from my city, you look like me, my age, are not doing and got nowhere near comparable. Mm. And that's not an accident. So you also have, I mean, prison. I mean, black people in the UK are actually more overrepresented in the prison population than African Americans are in um, US prisons. They really just in Britain. We just don't lock up as many people, so the numbers aren't as great, gross. Yeah. But the problem is still there. All the, I always say America is just a 
a more extreme version of, of Britain. You can see it more easily because there's more black people. Yeah. We had that many black people in Britain. You'd see it be exactly, it'd be, no, it'd be absolutely no different. Yeah. And, and so I think that's that's the problem with these. That's the big difference. How can the Garvey movement a hundred years ago get five million people with no real tools of communication? And today we've got all the communication you'd ever need. We can't get ten people together in a room. Yeah. Uh, it's because when the Garvey people went around saying oh, this is not for us, everybody went, oh, of course, like we know, obviously. But now we've we've kind of convinced ourselves that we can. Um, have some kind of freedom within the system. You just mentioned the differences between um, America and, and, and Britain. Mm. Um, do you think, like, how has history affected sort of black experiences in Britain when compared to that of America? So, you, you know, you hear a lot about this, the American Civil War and things like that. Mm. Is, there, is there a difference, do you think, on how, how sort of black communities look back on their, their history yeah. comparing the two? Yeah, there is a difference. And this difference is uh, one of the big problems with how we look back at historic history through narrow nationalist eyes. This is one thing I always say you can't... Thinking about Britain as a nation state is mad, madness, because Britain still isn't actually a nation state. Like, it still has colonies, right? Mm. And up until the 60s, it was a vast empire that covered most most of the world. So the biggest way that we look wrongly back historically, particularly when we look at America, is because slavery was in the Caribbean, we kind of see ourselves as voluntary migrants. We were never supposed to be in the Caribbean, so I'm not sure how exactly is that voluntary. Uh, and we, because and we have this conversation with Americans a lot, saying that oh, it's so different because they're, they're in Jamaica. But actually, if you actually look at the situation for African Americans in particular and African Caribbeans, obviously African African born African people, that's a bit different. Yeah. But for African Caribbeans, it's really identical. So what you have is. The South of America is where you have plantations and you have slavery, and it's it's very harsh and. Uh, the North is seen as this beacon of hope and light and people will try and run away to the North and the North. Um, and then after after slavery ends, because the South is terrible and, it's, and there's lots of racism, people mm. flee in their millions from the South to the North, expecting because the North is this beacon of freedom, they expect it's going to be better, right? And they find it's not better, they find it's exactly the same. Um, but that's exactly what happens in, in with us in the Caribbean. So you have an area, Caribbean, which is like the American South, Lots of black people, slavery's there, et cetera, et cetera. This idea that Britain is, is somehow different uh, is the, what did Cameron say? The country that ended slavery. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, the, it's this beacon of hope and truth, the mother country, blah, blah, blah. Uh, end slavery, apparently. Uh, people get free, then they find that conditions are terrible, so they migrate in their millions to the, to the, to the UK, expecting it's going to be this beacon, this beacon of hope, et cetera. And find it's terrible as well. And actually, so the conditions that we find ourselves in as particularly African Caribbean heritage are identical to the conditions that African Americans find themselves in the north. Exact identical in terms of police, education, mental health, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But also identical historically. That's that's the America's so big. Sometimes we forget how big it is. That yeah. migration in distance is probably about the same, really, because it's a huge country. Um, so I think there's far more similarities in that than there are differences. Mm. Obviously, now you've got African, a large African population in the UK where don't have the slavery route. But what I would say is that in Britain still, blackness is defined largely through that, through those ideas, through those stereotypes. And one of the things that's changed a lot, actually, in, re in recent history is when I was growing up, there was a big difference between African, the way African African people were seen and treated, uh, the model minority, you know, they get better GCSEs. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, today, this is black British. <laughs> Everybody just like, if you, mm. culturally, like culturally is the best way to look at this. Some like grime music, which is like our old hip hop, um, 
UK rap or uh, where it would all have been Caribbean people. Like literally, it would all have been Caribbean people back in the day. And now look at the main grammar. It's Stormzy, it's Ghanaian, um, mm. even Skepta. Like Stormzy, Skepta, top. They're all they're all from African heritage. So what you're finding is that as we develop this kind of Black British culture, it's still largely defined on that kind of hyper-masculine stereotypes around et cetera, et cetera. And Africans are kind of folded into that because that is mm. the dominant the dominant narrative, I think. Um, you've, in the book, and, and you've, you've spoken about it as well, um, and it's, it's not just you, it's, it's sort of been in the press quite a lot over recent years, is is the paying, making reparations to mm-hmm. um, to, to those countries who, you know, were affected by, by the slave trade and colonisation. Um that would be. I mean, we're talking trillions and of of, of pounds. Um, is that is that something you you stand by that you think should happen? And and if so, you know, what would you say to somebody who said, "Well, hang on, I personally didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are I had no control over this. Yeah. What, what what's your kind of argument? Um, it's already too late for reparations. Right. Like, reparations are. There's, I don't think there's any logical, moral, legal argument against reparations. Mm. I mean, do you even have historical precedent? You have slavery in particular is. I mean, it's hundreds, three hundred years of unpaid labour, yeah. uh, which is never rec- was never recompensated recom- re- um, for. Uh, if you want to explain why the Caribbean is so poor, this would be a very good reason why the Caribbean is so poor. Uh, we talk about slavery as though it was a long time ago; it really wasn't that long ago. But the more important part about how long it was is the impact of it is still there, right? You haven't you, you've just ta- you've moved people from Africa to the Caribbean. You've not paid them for three three hundred years. Uh, savage, being hugely savage towards people as well, which has really kind of destroyed many many things, and then put them in a position where you're supposed to say, "Well, okay, just carry on." And then you're yeah. surprised the countries of course they're poor. So the legacy of slavery is still very clearly clearly in the Caribbean. Uh, more than that, there was reparations paid after slavery to the slave owners. I mean, it was yeah. <laughs> it was so profitable. Mm. They pay, the biggest payment as outside of wartime until. The bailout of the banks it was a massive payment. The payment was so big that the government only paid back the loan to the Bank of England in 2015. And imagine that. I've actually paid back reparations to slave owners. This is mad. Like, actually, when you think about it, it's madness. That's how much money we're talking about. I think in America, some the latest, um, the latest one, the latest estimate is between 4.9 and 15 trillion dollars, depending on how you yeah. it's just but this is my point though, is that yes, it should be paid. But I think that the reparations argument really just goes to show how deeply embedded and impossible it therefore is. So if someone today says, I didn't benefit from slavery, what are you talking about? Everything we have today is Mm. built in some measure on slavery. If you just, so the UCL, University College London, have done the Legacies of British Slave Ownership Project, which just tracks the money from the um, reparations payment. And that's that's everywhere. I mean, that's through the banks, it's through the church, it's David Cameron's family. It's I mean, it's literally yeah. everywhere. And that's just the reparations payment. Forget the actual money made of it. Uh, if you look at Britain's biggest corporations, the banks, um, cities. I mean, where are we in Bristol? Are we were yeah, in Bristol. Exactly. I was just thinking the same. It simply yeah. couldn't wouldn't exist at all without slavery. Birmingham's no different. Birmingham, where I'm from, is in the middle of the country, but made. How much money did they make off making the guns, the chains, the shackles, sugar, refinery, cotton, mm. industrial revolution? I mean, the industrial revolution simply doesn't happen without slavery. It doesn't have the resources. The um, sugar is the first thing to be refined by the steam engine, for example, and then cotton. And then you just literally you don't have anything you have today without slavery. So, so there's a, a huge legacy. It's massive. To, yeah. I mean, it's massive legacy. It's not gone anywhere. And racism, obviously, is a, is a legacy of that as well. Mm. 
And also, if you look at Africa, I mean, why? What is one thing that gets? We don't think about slavery in relation to Africa because people left Africa, but the impact of slavery in Africa was to devastate Africa uh, in terms of population, hugely de de devastated population. Uh, but this is the amount of people who are killed, the, the mechanism, slavery really damaged Africa as much as it damaged us as well. Mm. So I think one of the things to look is to kind of tie that knot back together, um, which I think gets missed. So yeah, it should be paid, but it can't be paid because mm. it's impossible. The money, the, if you actually paid this sum, they would end the Western yeah. capitalism. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, like, so to this, but this is for me is why it's an argument actually for black radicalism, which talks about a revolution, a new political and economic system. Uh, because if you can't pay back for the damage that has been done, that tells you that you can't ever fix the problem within the system, right? So we need to just do something else. Is my argument. So you're saying we need a complete upheaval of of the current system that we we have here. Yeah, I mean everything's yeah. built. It's capitalism. You can't have capitalism without racism. You mm. can't have it. Doesn't exist. Britain today would not exist without racism. You've launched a degree in black studies yes. at Birmingham last year. Yeah. Um, which is a huge thing, and it's the first in Europe, isn't it? Yes, I think. it is the first black studies degree in Europe. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is which is fantastic. And but, but black studies. <laughs> There was black studies departments in, in the US actually from yeah. quite a long time ago in the 60s again, uh, wasn't there? Yeah, sort of there's gonna be a 50th anniversary next year, next year. For the Why is it taking so long to get to get to get one in the university here? Uh we don't really have a black middle class here. Right. So as in America it's like more like more emergent. So you've got people like you've got the black professor class, <clears> which is not many, again, it's not it's not it's not over exaggerated. It's not there's a huge problem in America too. Yeah. But Britain just hasn't had that historically and so now we had a point where there's more um there's more i guess a, a critical mass is a, is a big is a big word to use given the numbers are still quite low uh to be honest we got black studies as the whole story about how we got black studies and basically it was mostly about luck if i'm honest and no other university could offer a black studies degree no. so it's not like things have changed to the point where black studies is a thing we were just able to take advantage of our circumstances and mm. so we have six 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 full-time black members of staff at birmingham city university in the same department which is there's no i don't know it's so unheard of it's so yeah. so much of an aberration <laughs> that again you're just not going to be able to replicate that anyway. no. um but the story of black studies is also the story of this problem of the university so mm. if you, 69 uh san francisco state college uh, starts one of the first black studies programs and they're talking about you know they have a five month long strike to get the degree of staff and students um it's like a community communities involved is like this big they call it the battle for black studies and they insisted that black studies isn't just about it's not just about doing the learning about black people so you know we have in the uk african studies and caribbean studies yeah but they are not black studies because black studies is not just about learning about black people it is what uh, Gerald McWhorter called the science of liberation, or Nathan Hare talked about the community component. So the idea was you do university differently, because actually university, the way it's structured is part of the problem. So it has to be about politics and about how do we fix people, how do we fix the lives of the community, how do we go out and do service work in the community. It's a very different tone to it. But within two years, that's kind of disappeared from black studies, and black studies becomes African-American studies, which is an important intellectual project, mm. but kind of misses out that liberation stuff and misses out the community component stuff. And if you go to, I think, the majority of African-American studies departments, you've got a lot of black professors and people in them, but are they doing that work that the original black studies set out to do? 
And I think if you look at what we're doing, that's definitely there with what we're trying to do. But if you're going to, if I was going to predict where it went, does it mm. keep that kind of, that kind of community radical approach? Or does it become part of the furniture of universities? It's more likely just going to become part of the furniture mm. of universities because that's, that's what the university is like. It's interesting what you're saying about how you have six full-time black members of mm -hmm. staff in your department. Because right. um, there was a, a recent report by the Royal Historical Society, wasn't there, which I have to say some of the, the statistics are, are incredible, really, that um, only 0.5% of history academic staff in, U, in UK universities are black, which is a tiny... Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but it also said that um, only 11% of students coming from black and minority ethnic backgrounds read history, yeah. um, which, why do you think so few uh, BME students are, are choosing to, to, to read history? Uh, why would they want to read history? I mean, like, history, no, no different than sociology, but okay. history, I think, I think history has a, because it's so like, you know, we're teaching history of this, history of that. Mm. And if you look at, I mean, so many universities still have jobs in what they call extra European history i mean the framing of history in this country is europe is history and anything else is just kind of like an additional you may get and if you go i think if you go to most degrees you'd never you might never ever see anything other than europe america maybe a splash here yeah. or there when I mean, oxford's what was it last year oxford was celebrating the fact that you would now have to take a degree in non-europe and, and examine non-european history to pass your to pass your history it's like supposed to be progress mm. this tells you how terrible the subject is and it's the same at History, I did A-level history and I did GCSE history and it was just Germany, France, we did Germany, we did Germany, Italy, Second World War, First World War, that was it. <laughs> and, that, yeah. that's, that, and that I think is the experience that lots of people have of history in school and then so why why are they going to take history? It's a really, it's a really, really severely white, 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 white subject yeah. that doesn't interest people. And I think what, I think what gets missed a lot is that that is a less, a kind of symbolic form of violence. You are basically telling people they're stupid if you don't teach, if you teach that this is what history is or this is what knowledge is. Um, and so people are alienated from it, unfortunately. Mm. I think people are interested in history. They're just not interested in white history. White yeah. history. Do you think um, things like Black History Month and I know this is the, we're in the UN International Decade for People of African Descent. Which you I, never know it, right? But I didn't, yeah. <laughs> yeah we really started in 2015. <laughs> yeah. um, do you think, uh, do you see these as a kind of token gesture, like an add-on thing, which then, you know, we can forget about black history for another 12 months? Um, or do you think they actually bring something to, to, to schools and, you know, universities and, and just, you know, society, really? Um, I guess it's better than nothing. I mean, mm. I can't be positive. It's better than nothing. I yeah. mean, we didn't have black history, but we never talk about black history at all in schools. So at least there is money as well. Mm. Uh, people get paid to do stuff, and there's you know really interesting events happen in Black History Month. So, and again, without that, you just wouldn't have. No, I mean, I just think it'd totally whitewashed the whole year. So it's better than nothing, but it's not much better than nothing. I think it is very tokenistic. If you look at what what gets done, how it's how we've kind of structured our own. So like, black they call Black History Month Black Employment Month because that's a time where you're gonna go and get you know people come and pay you for stuff. Right. I, mean, I get asked to talk all the time. I mean, I, actually, I, get, I do talk a lot throughout the year, but Black History Month is a time when it's almost every, like, it's four times a week. Mm. People are paying, throwing money at you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's like we've forgotten there's other months in the year, so like, why, why are we still... But that's just the way the funding works. So I think it's it's problematic in that level. Mm. Also, anything controlled by the state is problematic because then it becomes Diversity Month. Uh, it becomes It yeah. becomes something else. And it does become a bit too separate, so I think... 
like this book I'm writing. So this this book I'm writing now about the West is built on racism. For me, that's that's Black history. Like that, the way understanding the Britain as an empire, understanding the West, that's Black history, right? That, that is that's. But that never really you never have that conversation in Black History Month because it's more about cel- and all the things about celebrating, which is problematic because actually, and that much to celebrate <laughs> when you look back yeah. Britain anyway. Like we have lots to celebrate, but if you look at Britain's relationship to Black history, that should not be a celebration. It should be far more critical. That was Kehinde Andrews. And as I mentioned earlier, his book, Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century, is out now, published by Zed Books. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back on Thursday with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.